Good afternoon or good evening whenever you're watching this. This is Lakewood Bible Chapel and again wanted to uh, apologize for the technical difficulties we had this past Lord's Day, uh, but we felt it was important enough this section of scripture to uh, re-record the sermon and I just want to thank Yusuf for being gracious enough to meet uh, early on this Wednesday morning and uh, record this sermon. So The text that we're preaching from is Acts chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles or you want to grab a Bible and follow along, Acts chapter 9, and we're going to be reading from the second half of verse 19 all the way to the end of the chapter. So this is God's word. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we looked into a monumentally significant section of Scripture Again, one that many say is the most significant section of the book of Acts, right next to God sending his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You'll remember this man, Saul of Tarsus, was on his way from Jerusalem, full of rage and hatred, charging into Damascus and Syria, not only with a band of men behind him, but with letters in hand, which gave him the authority to bind anyone who belonged or identified with the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Anyone belonging to the way, whether men or women. You remember he was heading down this road to Damascus as a mighty defender and champion of truth. He was on a pious mission to do the God of the heavens and the earth a tremendous favor by wiping out these blasphemers from the face of the earth once and for all. But something happened on the way, didn't it? Something miraculous happened, something supernatural. He received a divine vision. A light brighter than the sun shone all around him, accompanied by a voice which asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
prompting him to reply, Who are you, Lord? To which the creator and sustainers of the entire universe replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Of course, we learn that while Saul had actually not been actively persecuting Jesus of Nazareth, who by this time had already been raised from the dead, ascended back up to the right hand of the Father in heaven, while he wasn't persecuting Jesus personally and literally, he was persecuting the body of Christ, the church. And an attack on the body is an attack on the head, and Christ is that head. But it It's at this moment for Saul of Tarsus that he would stop attacking the body. He would cease in his attacks on the body because it's it's at this moment that he was welcomed in as a member of the body. It's at this very moment he would go from persecutor to professor. He would go from hater to herald. He would go from a scoffer of the Christ to a slave of the Christ, bought with a price. It's at this very moment that Saul of Tarsus was converted. He was made to be alive together with Christ, the resurrected Messiah and Lord of all creation. If any of you listen to Paul Washer, a well-known preacher and uh, missionary to Peru, uh, if you listen to any of his sermons, you'll likely hear him say something to the effect of, There is a greater manifestation of the power of God in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit than in the creation of the world, the universe. Because while he created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing, he has to recreate his children out of of an utterly corrupt mass. And there's good reason for him saying this over and over in his sermons. Consider what it takes for God to save sinners like us Like Saul, we were unwilling to acknowledge the truth. We were enemies of God. We were hostile in mind to the things of our creator. And by his grace, by his love for us, he then causes us to turn from that sin and to willingly turn to him and all for his own glory. This was the case for the the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who up to this point, and certainly in verses 1 and 2, was nothing more than a terrorist. He was hostile in mind to the things of God, no doubt, but also hostile in deed toward the people of God and toward the body of Christ. And an attack on the body is an attack on the head. But then, this miracle of light, this voice and this vision of the resurrected Christ, we're told by Saul himself in Acts 22 that Those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. What shall I do? Lord. He goes into the city, he goes into a house and to this room and he begins praying. He's been blind for three days and after being told by Jesus to go to a certain place and wait for instruction, three days later in walks one of the men who he was coming to persecute, Ananias, who lays his hands on him, something 
like scales fall from his eyes, and he regains his sight like that. And in an instant, this bitter enemy of the cross is now subdued by grace as he is addressed as Brother Saul and welcomed into the bodies, body of believers at Damascus. Now, our verse 19, point one in your outline, which we will also put online. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, it's important right from the get-go that we establish some of the times and locations of these events. Luke says, for some days he was in Damascus, and that's true. He was there for some days. And it's also true that immediately, immediately after his conversion, he began proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. But what we don't see here in Acts chapter 9, but Paul himself will go on to tell us in Galatians chapter 1, is that there's actually a three-year period of time from verse 19 to verse 25. Just looking on the surface here and, and using our modern English translation of some days and many days, we might be tempted to think he was in Damascus for a week or two before heading off to Jerusalem, maybe even a couple of months, but as we'll see, it was actually over a period of several years. Now, before we get into the details of these three years, I want you to look again at Luke's words in verse 19. Immediately. Immediately. There's no mistaking that word right away, at once, instantly after taking food and being strengthened. Immediately, Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Notice that's synagogues, plural. Uh, Historians say there could be as many as 30 to 40 in Damascus at that time. immediately he he begins proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. And what was his message? That he is the Son of God. And I want you to imagine this moment with me for a moment. Imagine you're part of one of these local synagogues in Damascus, and, and here you have the great Saul of Tarsus walking down the streets of your city with a reputation that definitely precedes him. But not only does he walk down the streets of your city, but he actually comes to your very synagogue that morning. And here you have all these Jews in this meeting place who hear the great Saul is going to come and deliver a message. He's going to come rally the troops. He's going to come and give everyone an update on his zealous quest of defending the truths that have been given to them by Moses and by the prophets. He's going to come in and get everybody riled up. So he walks in. He likely walks down this small stairway and walks into this dimly lit space with bleacher-like seating all around him. And I want you to imagine now as he, he sits down, and everybody's gaze is fixed upon him. Everybody's staring at him, waiting to hear his words. By the, by the time he's called upon to share, you can hear a pin drop in this place. And all of a sudden he says, my brothers, I have a message for you from Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Can you imagine the tension there? Imagine the scene. Imagine the chaos and the shock. Verse 21 says, and all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? They were amazed. 
And that's the best translation. They were amazed. They were in awe. They were perplexed. It was amazing to see this agitator of those belonging to the way, this persecutor of Christians, this terrorist of Christians, now preaching their message in our synagogues. They had to be thinking, what in the world is going on here? There may have even been some Christians in there. As we know from earlier chapters, they'd still meet in the synagogues. They'd still meet together in, synagogue, in the synagogues. Think of how they responded to this. You want to talk about an emotional roller coaster. Paul I- immediately begins preaching to these people, and his message is this. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. This is the only place in the entire book of Acts that this phrase, Son of God, is used. In verse 22, he was also proving that Jesus was the Christ. The Old Testament saw the ideal king of the future, the Messiah of David's line, as the Son of God. Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, Micah 5, so many others. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. To us, a son is given. This is why the high priest asked Jesus in Mark chapter 14, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And what did Jesus say? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. And now here is Saul, who just days before was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Here is Saul before these Jews saying, He is. And you will see him seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. How do you describe something like this? How can anyone ever explain this? How can we put it into words? Well, the only appropriate word here is that it was a miracle. It's a miracle of the Lord. And Luke says it caused all people to be amazed. They were amazed. Now, despite the amazement of these Damascan Jews, along with their obvious rejection and anger, uh, verse 22 says, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, I believe this increasing all the more in strength goes way beyond his recovering from the three-day fast, as some have mentioned. I believe This is his maturing as a preacher. He's confounding the Jews by proving to them through the Old Testament writings, which he knew very, very well, that Jesus was the one spoken of by Moses and the prophets. All the while, he's growing in his own understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's being matured in the faith. Remember here, Paul at this point was a new believer. He was a new believer in Christ, but... New as he was, he was still preaching the most important, foundational, fundamental message that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. 
but he was growing. He was being, and, and Saul was being strengthened. And we know from 19, he was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. I can imagine late nights with these disciples where Saul is just soaking up these teachings of Jesus. I mean, he had heard the gospel from Stephen. He was present during Stephen's speech, so he, he heard about Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah. We can be pretty sure he heard some of their teaching on occasion, but now he got to sit with them one-on-one and, and again, basically absorb everything that they were saying. Look with me now at verse 23. When many days had passed, okay, so we have to stop right there. Some of the wording here uh, used by Luke is a little bit vague. This many days in verse 23 is actually translated in in the literal Greek as sufficient time or when... Uh, sufficient time or an extended period had passed. Again, as we said earlier, this is actually a period of up to three years. So we have to ask the question, what in the world is Saul doing for three years after his conversion in Damascus and his immediately preaching in the synagogues? Well, we have an answer for that, and it's found again in Galatians chapter 1. You can turn there if you'd like, otherwise I'll just read it here. Verse 11 says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, Listen to verse 18. He says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. So it's very likely that he immediately began preaching in Damascus. Then he moved over for a little while to Arabia. Now, as a side note, there are some who say that he went to Arabia for three years to be built up by the Lord, to learn the great truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt in my mind that's true, but I don't think this was some kind of getaway retreat where he was holed up with nothing but a few scrolls in some mountain like a, like a monk or something like that. Uh, most reputable, reputable commentators believe he was continuing to pray and meditate, and he was also beginning his ministry to the Gentiles, continuing to preach the word of God wherever he went. Now, it's important to know, it's also important to know that the Arabia of those days is different than the Arabia that we know of today. In fact, it's much further north of modern-day Arabia, and it was called Nabataean Arabia. And it's very, very likely that at this particular time in history, Nabataean Arabia had actually included the city of Damascus. And this region in those days was actually ruled by a king named Aretas. We can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. 
Paul wrote, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So you have this king, Aretas, who had not only put a governor in Damascus, but he actually uh, stationed a garrison of soldiers there to guard the city. He actually lent his soldiers to the Jews to help them catch Saul. Now, why? What does Aretas care about Saul? Why does uh, Aretas want to give a garrison of soldiers to stand at the gates to capture and kill this Saul of Tarsus? We don't know that for sure. We don't know the answer. John MacArthur thinks it was because he was irritated by Saul. He said, Saul had one thing about him that irritated all kinds of unbelievers. That is, everywhere he went, he was preaching Christ. And that included preaching Christ as the Son of God all over Nabate and Arabia, so much so that Aretas was just as irritated as the Jews were, so that they came together to try to get rid of the guy. So again, Saul is on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, but by God's grace, he is called to faith in Christ, and immediately he proclaims that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He goes off to Arabia for an extended period of time. He comes back to Damascus, and the disciples inform him that he's a wanted man. What this means is he's getting it from all sides here. Uh, The predator continued to become the prey first, as we heard last week. It was the Lord who hunted him down, and then we see the Jews in verse 23 wanted to kill him because he was such a traitor and such a deserter. Now we have the army of Aretas who are working alongside these same Jews and actually standing at the inside of the gates ready to, uh, to capture him for the purpose of killing him. They wanted to kill him. But verse 24 says their plot became known to Saul. Now they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him down in a basket. Uh, so the very same people whom he came into this town to kill are actually saving his life. Again, I ask you to consider the great and powerful Saul of Tarsus. He rides into Damascus, breathing threats and murder with a band of soldiers, maybe seated atop the finest horses in the empire and with the authority of the high priest ready to wipe out an entire movement only to leave Damascus in a laundry or fish basket lowered out of an opening in the city walls where he would flee and run away in the dead of night. And thus begins the humiliation of Paul. Thus begins the fulfillment of God's promise to Ananias. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake, how much he must suffer. He'll go on to give us a list of sufferings in later letters, but what we read of in verse 26 may top them all. Luke writes this, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. When Saul came back into Jerusalem, he wasn't coming back to the Sanhedrin. He he wasn't coming back to the chief priests or the Pharisees or his buddy Gamaliel. No, he 
was coming to meet with the apostles of Christ, Peter and John and certainly the others, but we know for sure uh, those two. Now the word attempted here actually indicates multiple attempts. He came up to Jerusalem after three years away and he kept on attempting. He tried over and over and over again to join the disciples, but Luke says they were afraid of him. And this is understandable, right? I mean, surely they had heard of his conversion, but years have gone by now. Why didn't he come down earlier? And surely they had heard of his preaching in Damascus and Arabia, but why didn't they hear more? Well, they probably heard plenty about Saul, but they just didn't believe it. They just didn't believe it. Why? Because they were terrified of him. Saul of Tarsus approved of the execution of Stephen, this man we love, this this man who was a servant to our body, to our widows, to the church. He he approved of this man having large stones dropped upon him. He he stood there and gave his blessing to those who were hurling hunks of rock at at his face and and the head of our brother in Christ. He stood there holding the garments of those who, who were doing the throwing. He was giving approval to one of the most heinous and brutal forms of execution the world had ever known, and really without a formal or fair trial. I wonder if any of you have ever witnessed somebody getting stoned to death. It's possible that you have. It wasn't just something that was practiced in ancient times. It still goes on even to this very day, uh, mostly in Muslim countries. It's considered an honor killing to stone men and women who are accused of blaspheming the God of Islam, but it's not only for blasphemers, it's also reserved for women and girls who are accused of bringing shame to the name of the husband or their family. In many cases, it's actually the father of the young woman who has the privilege, the privilege of throwing the first stone at his daughter. A few years ago, Psychology Today wrote an article describing the process. It said, in the middle of the field, the woman is buried in the ground up to her chest, and everyone is circled around her. There are piles of stones ready to be thrown. These stones are large enough that they will cause life-ending damage, but not too big to kill her on impact. Stoning is meant to be a slow, painful, and deliberate death. If it's a married woman, the husband has the honor to throw the first stone, and then her children are coaxed into taking part. They are told to do it for God. The woman is allowed to try to escape, but she's buried too deeply for the next 10 to 20 minutes. The rest of the community joins in until there's nothing left but a bloody stump. Saul of Tarsus, a powerful Pharisee, a man of great influence, stood there and approved of this execution. He stood there as rocks were being hurled at our brother Stephen. And with that in mind, we can understand why Peter and John and James didn't rush to the phone to call up Romanos and have a fellowship luncheon to celebrate this particular homecoming. Saul of Tarsus imprisoned many of our brothers and sisters. Saul of Tarsus ripped apart our families, fathers away from their children, mothers away from their children, husbands away from their wives, wives 
away from their husbands. Saul of Tarsus took advantage of us who are taught to turn the other cheek when we're being persecuted. Saul of Tarsus beat us. Saul of Tarsus imprisoned us. Saul of Tarsus murdered us. Saul of Tarsus ravaged us. Luke says Saul ravaged the church. And now he wants to join us? No way. No way. He's a spy. He's a mole. He's a Trojan horse. He's going to come in here. He's going to kill the apostles. He's going to kill Peter. He's going to kill John. He's going to kill Jesus' brothers. We've been down this road before. See Judas Iscariot. We're not falling for this again. Now, we know that Saul was converted. We know that the conversion of the apostle Paul was genuine, but they didn't know that at the time. And imagine how Saul felt. He did do all those things. He he would be the first to admit that he, he did that. He approved of the execution of Stephen. He wrote about it. He would also be the first to ask for their forgiveness if he could only talk to them. If he could only talk with him, but Luke says it right here in verse 26, they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not believe he was a follower, a true believer in the name of Jesus. But then something remarkable happens, doesn't it? Verse 27 says, but Barnabas. But Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. But Barnabas. Oh, to have a Barnabas in our lives. And oh, to be a Barnabas in the lives of others. To be an encourager of others, an advocate for others. This son of encouragement in this one move, in this one gesture, in the strength of the Lord actually reshaped world history as he vouched for this wolf who had become a precious little lamb, a precious lamb of God who had gone to be perhaps the greatest of the apostles, who had gone to pen nearly half of the New Testament. Barnabas would come and once again, just like with Ananias up in verse 17, welcome Saul in as a brother. That's true forgiveness, true brotherly fellowship. And Luke says in verse 28, so Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. I have to share a testimony told by Dr. Ironside in in one of his commentaries. He said, I remember reading in a missionary record of a young man in New Guinea who had been away to school. He had gotten a good education. Then he returned to his own island and to his own village after his conversion. On the Lord's Day, the group of missionaries and believers were gathered together to observe, observe the Lord's Supper. As this young man sat down, One of the older missionaries recognized that a sudden tremor had passed through the young man's body. The young man had laid his hand on the missionary's arm, indicating that he was under great nervous strain. Then in a moment, all was quiet again. The old man whispered, what was it that troubled you? He said, the man who just came in killed and ate the body of my father and now he has come in to remember the Lord with us. 
At first, I was so shocked to see the murder of my own father sit down with us at the table of the Lord. I didn't know whether I could endure it, but all is right now, for he is washed in the same precious blood. So together they had communion, and Ironside said, Does the world know anything of this fellowship? It is a marvelous thing, the work of the blessed Holy Spirit of God. I think of Saul of Tarsus seated there with that little group of believers around him, and I think of them looking over and saying, that is the man who arrested my father. That is the man who threw my mother into prison. That is the man who tried to make me blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus. There he sits, a humble and contrite believer, receiving the bread and the wine in commemoration of our Lord who died. What a wonderful fellowship. And Barnabas had the same attitude, didn't he? He welcomed his brother into the, into the body, and he trusted in the providential power of God the Holy Spirit. Luke says Paul went in and out from them. This means the apostles and the believers welcomed him into their fellowship as well. And he continued to preach the name of Jesus boldly. Galatians also says that he preached boldly, but only within the city limits. And among those uh, who were hearing him, as we see in verse 28, were the Hellenists. And we remember who these guys are, right? These were the Greek Jews. These were the Greek-speaking Jews who were uh, zealous for the law of God and the temple of God, and they were imitators of the cultural norms of God's chosen people in Jerusalem. And do you remember the last time that we saw them? It was at the uh, stoning of Stephen. So here we are again, but this time the scene's a little bit different. Instead of a a mad rush of wolves to attack a lamb that has been separated from the flock, it turns out one of their own has not only joined the Christian faith, but is now fervently defending and arguing or debating with them concerning this Jesus of Nazareth. And unsurprisingly, these these Hellenists react the very same way to Saul's message as they did to Stephen's. Uh, Luke says in verse 29, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him not only because of the words he was speaking, but because His becoming a Christian was a testimony against them and against what they held so dearly to, namely justification before God by works of the law. Works of the law and and an adherence to the oral laws and commandments of rabbinical Judaism. You see, just like in the case of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, they weren't able to argue with Saul. They, They couldn't present a clear case against Saul's claims. They couldn't hang with him when it came to the truths of the eternal plan of uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They couldn't refute him. So like all the other God-haters of this world who don't actually have any real lasting power, they had to resort to physical violence and murder. As again, Luke says, they tried to kill him. So now, of course, uh, word of Saul spreads throughout the entire city and gets back to the apostles who say, all right, things are getting a little too crazy now. Things are getting a little carried away. And Luke says in verse 30, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. John Stott summarizes Saul's early ministry this way. It was Christ-centered. It was driven by the Spirit. It was courageous and costly. 
Luke concludes this section here in Acts chapter 9 and really the larger section of Acts by saying in verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Again, what one preacher called the unstoppable word of God. Look at that in verse 31. The gospel had spread from Judea up through Samaria all the way north to Galilee. This is the great commission being fulfilled. And notice how Luke uses that word church there in the singular form, reminding us that the church is not a building. It's not this old pile of bricks. It's not the boiler. It's not new chairs or carpet or projection screens, but rather it's you. And it's me, and it's our brothers and sisters all over the world. It's our brothers and sisters in Littleton and Centennial and down at Camp Elam and in Myanmar and in South Africa and Zimbabwe, India, all over the globe. I love that. Uh, The church had peace and was being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord true, reverential, worshipful, healthy fear and adoration of the one true God. We'll do a message on the fear of the Lord sometime. Now, interestingly, we won't see Paul again until Acts chapter 11, and guess how many more years pass by? Something like 10 years, another 10 years. He's in, he's in uh, Tarsus for almost 10 years before God leads Barnabas up to go up to to Tarsus, get Paul to help him in the ministry at Antioch. Ten more years before they even hear from Paul again. Uh, Three of the just brief takeaways from the conversion of Saul. Number one, if you haven't figured it out by now, especially in the days and times that we're living in, uh, the prosperity gospel, this health, wealth, name it, claim it, seeker-sensitive, easy, easy believism gospel that you see on TV and see on the internet and read about in Christian bookstores. It's a lie from the depths of hell. It's actually a damnable false religion which has unfortunately taken captive many a professing believer in our churches. Look at Saul's life here, just in the, the first couple of years of his conversion. Just in this chapter alone, you you realize that he was in complete isolation at one point, right? He was hated by Jews. He was hated by Gentiles. He was hated by the Hellenists. He was even hated by Christians, frankly. He was in Damascus, but they chased him out. They wanted to kill him. So he goes to Arabia, and the king out there wants to have him killed. Then he flees to Jerusalem, only to find the apostles who are afraid of him, and they don't trust him. When they finally do trust him, he starts preaching Christ to the Hellenists, and they want to kill him. Uh, So much hostility and and hatred that he has to be shipped back to his hometown where he will preach and pray and wait for the real suffering to begin. Uh, Again, he tells us in 2 Corinthians what it means not to get rich off the name of Christ, but what it means to be a slave of Christ. He says, I have endured far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentile, uh, Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Where, oh, where is the Mercedes Benz? Where's the house in the burbs with the trophy wife and the 2.5 kids? Where's the good health? Where's the physical healing? Where's the positive thinking? Where's the charismatic euphoria and ecstasy? Where's the perfect marriage, Paul? Where's the balanced checkbook, the jaw-dropping retirement portfolio? Where is the prosperity for Saul of Tarsus? Answer? It's in his eternal soul. It's in his everlasting soul because... Unlike those who worship those things as their God, Saul now has the true Holy Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of him. He has no need for the things of this fleeting and corrupt, cursed world system to get him through life on this earth. The so-called prosperity gospel is not in the Bible. Any theology that says, gee, Saul, you're really a good person deep down inside. God would really consider it an honor to give you that little extra boost needed to make you great is a lie from the devil. It's a cult. It's a lie from the father of lies, Satan, who tries to distract us with the promises of this world full of things which can never satisfy the soul. You know it. Christians are never promised health, wealth, and prosperity. On the contrary, we are, we are promised hardship and, and suffering and persecution, we're, we're sickness. The only thing we're actually guaranteed is certain death, but life everlasting. And therefore, we can now face all these things resting our head upon the pillows of God's grace and God's sovereignty, as Spurgeon said. Second takeaway, and this ties right in with the first. We don't make Jesus Lord of our lives. Jesus is Lord of our lives. Jesus is Lord of all lives, even the lives of those who don't believe in him. Paul says, what will you have me do, Lord? Kurios, master, owner, sovereign ruler. Then he does it. And he's motivated to do it, not only by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of him, but by a humble recognition that the Lord has shown him grace and mercy by not striking him dead and sending him to an eternity in hell right there on the road to Damascus. So Saul willingly admits the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's calling the shots here. And he sincerely and reverentially submits his entire life to the one who already had dominion over it. Jesus is Lord. We don't make Jesus Lord of our lives as some have foolishly claimed. Jesus is Lord of our lives. Matthew Henry said, 
All the grace contained in the Bible is owing to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And unless we consent to him as our Lord, we cannot expect any benefit by him as our Savior. You know what he's saying there, right? Let me read it again. Matthew Henry, all the grace contained in the Bible is owing to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And unless we consent to him as our Lord, we cannot expect any benefit by him as our Savior. John MacArthur said, the question in salvation is not whether Jesus is Lord, but whether we submit to his lordship or are submissive to his lordship. Hudson Taylor said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. All this to say, we, we don't get saved one day and then make Jesus our Lord again at a later day. Again, we're, we're giving ourselves way too much credit in this whole transaction. We don't make the sovereign Lord of all creation Lord. Uh, Paul would go on to live out the rest of his days no longer for his own glory for his own status or prestige or for his own satisfaction, but he would live them out in total submission to the will and the glory of his master as he went from a scoffer of Christ to a slave of Christ, a slave of Christ who was bought with a price, the very precious blood of his Lord and Savior. Look at Paul's action, actions here. He, he gets converted on this road, then he asks, what will you have me do, Lord? Then he does it. Then he prays, he listens to God and the instruction of God. Then he rises and he's baptized as commanded by his Lord. Then immediately, immediately, this brand new convert, he goes and tells others that Jesus is the Son of God. Then he goes there, then he goes here, all while doing his master's work including eventually writing nearly half of the letters of this divinely inspired and God-breathed New Testament. Genuine faith produces genuine God-glorifying works. It always bears fruit. And I will just ask you this, this morning, or whenever you're listening to this, is this true in your life? Are you genuinely concerned with the will of your Lord and the glory of your Father in heaven? And does the fruit produced from your life match up with your convictions, match up with your words? Are you bearing good fruit as a result of being a good tree? Are you bearing good fruit in your family as as a God-honoring husband or wife or worker or in the church? Are, Are you bearing good fruit in the world and Again, in your workplace. You know, James says, faith without works is dead. And when he says that, he's not saying that works are what save a person or what justify a person, nor am I, but he's saying that genuine faith, genuine conversion, genuine transformation and regeneration will produce genuine God-glorifying works. It has been said that faith is pregnant with works. Works will come out of genuine faith. Good works will be born from genuine faith. Faith and works are two sides of the same coin. Even Jesus himself said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. So, again, I ask, are you bearing good fruit for the kingdom? Are you using the, the gift or gifts that have been given to you by God the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body? And that looks different for everyone, of course, but is the pattern of your life, the trajectory of your life, one of godliness and one of conformity into the image of the Son? Are you walking in accordance with the fruit of the Spirit that Paul himself would lay out in Galatians chapter 5? Is this true of you? I, I pray that's the case for you. Paul bore good fruit. Uh, Paul's life, while in no way perfect, was a prime example of conversion that bore good fruit, like any genuine conversion. And, and we, again, have the, the privilege of studying that together over the next few months and years, Lord willing. What a marvelously edifying section of Scripture this is, this conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Join me with in prayer now and uh, we'll go about our day. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you have saved sinners like us, Lord, who are in no way deserving of the wonderful things that you have for us in Christ. But we, we revel in them and we rest in the promises of your word. We rest in your scriptures and we long for that day when we can see you face to face where we will give you the praise that you truly deserve for 10,000 times 10,000 years. You alone are worthy, Lord. So we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel. 